Hello and welcome to another episode of Planning People, the NMA podcast. In the past few weeks, we've been talking a lot about innovation, financial innovation, regulatory innovation, tech innovation. And do you know what that got me thinking? What on earth do the big old-fashioned life companies do about this? How are they innovating? How are they keeping a pace with regulatory change? And are they doing a good job? Can they even do a good job? Here to discuss all that and more is a man I've met on several occasions on the conference circuit. He's the enthusiastic, optimistic type who doesn't seem phased by having to sit in a room full of ministers yammering on about nothing in particular, and he always puts his hand up to ask a question. It's Alistair McQueen, Head of Savings and Retirement at Aviva. Hello, how are you? I'm, I'm delighted to be here, Ollie. Um, I, I feel this could be the beginning of something very special. I think we could be like the next Ant and Deck. The next Ant and Deck? I think this is it. But, but without all the sort of emotional and social baggage. No, we've got all that, obviously, so I think we're <laughs> perfect for this gig. It's going to be good. I'm looking forward to it. Excellent. Let's see how we get on. Um, you know, this could be your audition, maybe. Well, I think this is it. From now on, it's the, the Ollie and Al show. The Ollie and Al show. I like it. Um, we seem to be on a bit of a roll with this podcast when it comes to quizzes, Alistair. Uh-huh. Uh, and this episode is no different. So before we get into the nitty gritty, I thought we'd play a game of Kings and McQueens. Ah, like it. This like is a five it. question true or false quiz on the relationship between the royal family and money. Mm. Shall we play? I'm, I'm up for this, yes. Okay, so number one, true or false? Yes. According to Forbes magazine, in 2016, the Queen's net worth was £402 million. In which year? 2016. 2016. I think that's false. I think surely the Queen's got more than that. It's actually true. <sighs> According to Forbes, Liz had Austerity. an estimated net worth of $530 million or £402 million in 2016. And the royal family itself is estimated to be worth $88 million or 66 British pounds. Number two, true or false? In 2017-18, the sovereign grant, which is the UK government money used to fund the royals, was increased to £76 million to help pay for the royal wedding between Harry and Meghan. Ah. <sighs> Sweet. True or false? Um... I'm going to guess every penny well worth spent true. It's actually incorrect. Oh, no. To much negative fanfare on Twitter, it was announced that the money would be earmarked for refurbishments of Buckingham Palace. Hey, that's, that's a good reason. That's so you've got to keep those tourists rolling you, in. You do. This is important. Um, so that's two, two to you, nil to me. Nil. Well, if this, you want to look at it how, like how, that. How many is it? A five? Is five. All oh, right. So this is this critical moment. This is the critical out. moment. Oh, Number three, true or false? The Queen pays income tax. False. It's true. Oh, voluntarily. <laughs> the Queen has volu- voluntarily yeah. paid income and capital gains tax since 1992 yeah. on her private income and the revenues not used to finance her official work. And right. Prince Charles actually has paid it since 1993. So yes. she, was the, she was the pioneer there. So, so hopefully both of them were listening. To so it's, the Queen is releasing a tax returns. Prince Charles is, but Trump is not. What does that <laughs> tell you about the state of the world today? Oh, well, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, can you get... Um, so that's it, 3-0. But anyway, what, let's num- see if I can Number four, we'll do, we'll do as a 50-50. Okay, so... <laughs> as against the true and false? <laughs> the f- you've got a better chance now. Okay. <laughs> the 15th century and rudely named Little Sodbury Manor was used by King Henry VIII as a retreat when he was not in central London. Okay. In 2016, it was put on the market for sale. But was the asking price A, 7.9 million, or B, 15 million? Right. 
I'm gonna. I'm feeling bullish this morning, so I'm gonna say 15 million. I would pay 15 million for it. It's a 7.9 uh, million. Yeah, so the I'm off to speed on this. This is good. The pad claims Anne Boleyn and English Bible translator William Tyndale as prior guests. It has 17,385 square foot of space, and just as Henry VIII himself has stipulated. An outdoor heated pool with terrace deck chairs <laughs> and hedges for privacy. Yeah, that's worth 50 million. Does that sound plausible? Let's go up for that, yeah. Let's go. Finally, can you, can you pull this back? I am. True yeah. or false, the best-selling coin on the Royal Mint website as of yesterday is a 50 pence piece specially engraved to celebrate the 40th anniversary of children's story, The Snowman. Surely not. I'm going to say that. <laughs> I'm looking at your face now, but I'm going to say false. Just it's true. Yay! For the paltry sum of £10, you too can get in on this action at a £9.50 loss, I might add. <laughs> £10 for a 50p coin. That's Indeed. Genius. But, you know, maybe it'll get, maybe longer term, there'll be some returns. I have never seen The Snowman. Really? I've never watched The Snowman. See, it's, it's, it's part of every sort of rubbish pub quiz. There's a question, you know, who sang The Snowman? Yes. And everyone goes, oh, it was Alan Jones. It wasn't. Actually incorrect. I know that. I the can tell you it is. Really? Yeah. He did, the, he did the, the, C, the, the CD, the, the vinyl recording. That's, well, he... I think. He, so what happened was he was the face of the song initially mm. for the film on top of the pops. But the person who did the studio recording was another child. And George, George, you know a fact? I have sung with Alan Jones. Have you? Yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. I, I sing in a choir, and really? we provided backing vocals to the great Alad in 2017. Wow. So there you go. I mean, I think, can we stop recording now? Is that, can we beat this? I'm, my mind is blown, Alistair. <laughs> Unfortunately, we can't stop recording oh. just yet. Um, that was the quiz. He's a very nice man. He is a nice man. Very nice man. Um, you didn't do too well there, Alistair, no, but I mean, it no. was quite difficult. So we'll move swiftly on to topics I outlined at the beginning of this episode. Excellent. We're going to talk about keeping with the times um, in yep. life and pensions. Some days it seems the world is changing faster than Freddie Mercury changed his outfit between mm. songs at that famous 1986 Wembley gig. Yeah. Um, it was a great concert. I imagine some people have the, an image of life and pensions companies as being these sort of paper-based, slow... Uh, monoliths, a bit like uh, something out of a Monty Python film. Is, yeah. is that entirely fair? Yeah, well, no, it's not fair. I mean, I have to confess, when I go to a wedding or meet mates in the pub or mm. a dinner party, I'd still struggle to get them to get enthused and engaged when I say I work in pensions. I've tried various angles, but there's still a challenge there. So there's a public challenge and a public perception. But I would argue that it's an industry that has gone through bigger transformation, more change, impacting more people than virtually any other industry in the UK at the moment. If you take the classic example, I'd say automatic enrolment, mm. in just six years, 10 million more people have been engaged. In just six years, 90% of employers in the UK have come on board. It's transformed the UK. I, I struggle to think of another industry that's had a more transformational impact on its population than our industry. And yeah, it might not be the latest iPhone, it might not be the latest technology whiz gadget that's going to feature in a news story on the television. But in terms of transforming people's lives, I think our industry 
should be holding its head up a lot higher when it comes to innovation and being proud of what we can do. Mm. Let's talk about digital because yep. that's a huge part of this, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, you've said in your notes here that you know the digital revolution is in its fourth phase. Yeah. Agricultural, industrial services, the digital yep. revolution is what we're going through now. Um, and you say you know Brits love digital. Yeah. I you know what sort of evidence do we have about well, that? Well, the evidence I go to is. Uh, there's loads of sources of information. The World Bank for years has been tracking usage of the internet mm. across the world, across all the countries in the world. 10 years ago, the UK was mid-table mediocrity. Um, we were that mid-table country, about 50% of us were regularly using the internet. If you look at the figures now, we are in the top five countries in the world. I think the top part of the world is Bermuda. Uh, apparently it's the most usage of the internet around the world. But the UK, something like 98% of us are regularly on the internet in the UK. It's right up there at the top. We love it, we use it, it's transforming our lives more than many countries around the world. So if technology can transform our industry, there's no better place I'd argue to do it than arguably in the UK. We're right at the forefront of all that. It poses disruptive uh, force, doesn't yep, it? It's, it does. it's this question of disruption. Uh, how does Aviva feel about disruption? Um, because you have this digital garage. Don't we you? do. Let's tell and me about that well, and explain to listeners at home you know, what it is, just in case they, don't, they yeah, don't know. First of all, on disruption, I think this is a buzzword that, you know, we, we always kind of puff our chests out in, in our industry and say we're into disruption. The truth of this, the phrase disruption came from I think it was a Harvard academic, more than 10 years ago, he said the world is going to be disrupted. So actually, to some extent, we're playing catch up with this element of disruption in our industry. It's been going on for some time. This means new people coming in, shaking up the market and challenging incumbents. And the classic examples you'd see there would be 10 years ago, we'd all talk about Kodak. Now it's Instagram. 10 years ago, we'd all go to Blockbuster videos. Now it's Netflix, etc. This morning I jump in a black cab, but no, now it's Uber. That's kind of disruption. What Aviva believes is that our industry is ripe for disruption. Um, everybody needs to save. We've got a growing aging population. We're not saving enough. We're struggling to engage people. If you're a disruptor, you look in that and you think, do you know what? This is a really rich market for me to get in and shake it up. Mm. Aviva's belief, and to some extent I'd say motivated by an anxiety, is that if we don't disrupt ourselves, somebody else will come along and disrupt us. And by us, I mean our industry, and by us, I also mean us as a company, Aviva. So what we've been doing for the last up to five years has been trying to disrupt ourselves. Now, a little history point here is, initially Aviva thought we will do that within the walls of the mothership. This is an organization in Aviva that's been going for 320 plus years. So we try to disrupt ourselves from within the walls of the traditional organization. We learned lessons from that in that it's very difficult to disrupt within the walls of an organization because the dominant forces are the forces of the established player, the established part of the organization. It's also with culture. That's culture, yeah. Um, if you're trying to challenge and you're surrounded by the incumbents, it's a very difficult place. Culturally, mm -hmm. systemically, funding-wise, it's difficult to do it within the walls of your existing organisation. So what Aviva chose to do was to create what we called our own separate digital business, mm -hmm. a standalone business that is to live and breathe and challenge itself and challenge other parts of Aviva to be disruptive and to live and breathe in the digital way. And that led to the creation of what we would call, and you've referenced, our digital garage. Can I just ask, how long did it take you to sort of re realize that lesson? You know, was that a, something that 
you know, you realised had to take place externally, you know, within yeah. you know, a year? Was it like, mm, this isn't quite working the way we thought, we need to do something else? Or was yeah. it sort of a slower transition? I mean, I think I'm going to put something out that I think, and this is always a challenging one, I think our chief executive went on the record back in 2013 and he quoted how many literally millions we had spent as an organisation trying to embrace digital back in 2013. And he said, we've spent X million pounds and he put the X million on the record. And I think he said, and this might be dangerous to see, but I think he said, and we've achieved absolutely nothing. You know, He's, he kind of confessed because of this inability to disrupt ourselves from within mm. back in 2013. And he said, therefore, from 2014, 15 onwards, we're gonna disrupt ourselves by setting up this standalone business, by creating a standalone entity, Aviva Digital, and giving it a standalone home away from the traditional property of the Aviva organization. And in our case, we chose London initially, and we chose a site in Hoxton, Shoreditch, mm -hmm. in the heart of, of the hipster Hoxton. Very hip. Yep, very, uh, nice. very near what they call the digital roundabout, Old Street, the digital roundabout. So it's the hub of this stuff. And we consciously created an office environment that's not like any of the other Aviva offices. Tans, ties, sorry, are legendarily banned in this office. People bring their dogs to work. There are, there are the skateboarders and the beards all around. <laughs> it is totally unlike any other organization. And it was consciously done, I think, for three reasons. One, we did want to bring that focus to the table. We wanted to have a business that did wake up in the morning and think digital, 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 without being surrounded by the incumbent ways. Sure. So that was one, we wanted the focus. The second is we wanted to bring in brand new talent into the organization. We had been trying to disrupt ourselves, and apologies to them, but with the actuarial community, the accounting community, <laughs> and the pensions geeks, you know? Mm -hmm. And we are brilliant at what we do and what they do, huge respect, but we are not at the forefront of digital disruption. Mm -hmm. So we brought in, we brought in games designers, we brought in philosophers, we brought in people from all over the world, younger people who were living and breathing digital technology. And we found it easier to attract them, I'll be honest, to a hip garage in Hoxton than we did to a suited environment in the city. Of course. So, so the talent was the other thing. And then thirdly, focus, talent, and culture was the other thing. The culture in that organization is much more um, unconventional. Um, there is no office space. It's incredibly open planned. There's an encouragement of Failure, bizarrely, but mm. failure fast yeah. and learning. Do something, do it quickly, take the lessons, shake things up, move on. Not the, maybe the traditional thing of never make a mistake, get it right and don't yeah. do anything. So focus, talent and culture were the three core ingredients that led to that digital garage. And since we've had one in North America, we've now got one in the Far East. Um, people all over the world trying to, trying to disrupt ourselves before somebody else comes along and disrupts us. I've got two questions following on from that. Um, the first one is, is sort of about honesty, I guess. I mean, I'm intrigued to, you know, to hear this anecdote about you know, a CEO saying, well, <laughs> we've yeah. spent all this money and it's not worked. Yeah. A few weeks ago, we had uh, Amy Rowe and Michael Taggart from Focal Global, their fintech marketing company. Yeah. You know, they were saying, you know, we need to be honest, effectively, about where tech is, and is falling short. And, yeah. and, you know, the big tech companies like Amazon and Facebook, you know, they're not perfect. They've had, in some cases, a pretty torrid year um, and in some ways fallen short of expectations. And I'm, I, I just think back to the interview I did, you know, last week with Paul Feeney that we put out this week where yeah. he was saying, you know, we spent 
333 million on a, on a new platform that never really came for, to fruition. Granted, yeah. we got something for our yeah. money, but it, it kind of failed. Yeah. Um, classic millennial talking about safe spaces, but mm -hmm. this is about having a safe space to be honest about things not working, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, that, and I think the, there's method in the madness of being incredibly brutally honest, and it is to you hold your hands up and say we've learned our lessons, but it was also designed to send a challenging message into the existing Aviva organisation. Mm. Um, to tell people that what we've done in the past is not acceptable for the future. Mm. Uh, it was incredibly positively and powerfully led from the top. That is a requirement. You need air cover for this environment that might test and learn and fail and fail fast. It needs air cover. Um, but that, that was designed consciously to say we need to draw a line and we need to move forward. If You, you mentioned there briefly Amazon. I mean, I think... Uh, business leaders are in the game, ultimately, I have to maybe be honest in saying there's an element of shareholder value motivation. In the last six weeks, we've learned that Amazon and Apple, I think, have become $1 trillion companies, yeah? Now, I, I thought that's a curious, that's a big number, that's a curious number. I therefore, just for the fun of it, this is what fun pensions people do, for the fun of it, I'm gonna say, I wonder how many insurers, pension companies it takes to add together to equate to $1 trillion. Right. And I scoured the world for the top companies in the world, including the great Aviva. It takes, it takes 20 insurers, the top 20 insurers really? added together equate to $1 trillion. Mm -hmm. and, and also Aviva, we've been around for 320 years. How long has Amazon and Apple been around for? 30 max, yeah. maybe 40 years? So. The world out there is changing, it's changing fast, there's huge value to be had. The spirit of honesty is a way of shaking up an organisation that can no longer, and an industry that can no longer just wait for evolutionary change, it needs to really change and change fast. Mm. Um, my second question following on from the digital garage stuff was, um, you know, I appreciate there's, a, there's usually an element of privacy surrounding, you know, that safe space to, to try stuff out. but. What are you seeing personally that's uh, kind of working and, and succeeding? The, the, the biggest, first of all, culture. Uh, I mean, before we get onto tangible product and tangible deliveries, I think there's three things I'd highlight. One is culture in that um, there's, a, there's a healthy tension, I would say, between the digital community and the incumbent established business that, that the, the management celebrate. They, they don't, they like that internal healthy competition and that culture has been fostered and grown is now challenging the incumbents to, 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 to shake things up. So there's a, there's a healthy cultural tension between digital and traditional, if I use that language. In terms of delivery, um, the, the flagship proposition that we always would refer to as Aviva's My Aviva, which allows customers to manage their um, their money with Aviva in one place, anytime, anywhere on their phone. Mm. Now we've now in the UK get more than five million people doing that from zero million um, four or five years ago. The interesting thing is the product, Aviva has a range of products from pensions to car insurance to healthcare to travel insurance, etc. The product that most people use it with to engage with is their pension. It is the backbone of that app because once you buy car insurance, you come back a year later, whereas when you buy a pension, you do want to check it on a more frequent basis. So My Aviva allows us to support our customers, allows us to give discounts to our customers, um, and it allows us to pro uh, propose other products to customers. So My Aviva, ability to manage your phone, your, your products on your phone is the vanguard product. 
However, the other thing is when you go into digital, people traditionally will get excited about apps and things that you can, yes, you can do on your phone or your, your digital tablet. In reality, increasingly we're realizing the power of digital is not on the presentation, but is in the data and it's data management behind the systems. We've got 30 million customers around the world in Aviva. There's a huge wealth of data that, to be honest, for a long time would just sit on the shelf yeah. and we think, okay, that's the data, but we, we will not work with it. We've now got in Aviva 500 data scientists. We've got a standalone unit um, of data scientists whose job it is, is to work on that data and under, understand how we can bring it to life for the benefit of our customers. One of the ways that that is being brought to life is a proposition we called Ask It Never. That would be if you, Ollie, had a car insurance product with Aviva mm -hmm. and you phone up and say, I now need travel insurance with Aviva. Traditionally, you'd be starting at the beginning and saying, what's your name, what's your address, what's your date of birth, where are you going, what's your risk threshold, etc." Because we've now got that data, we can say, oh, hi, Ollie, how are you doing? Yeah, here's the price. Without asking you any of those questions, this ability to use data to make the customer experience so much better. So culture, my Aviva, ability to manage your propositions, increasing your pension on your phone, but more and more it's the data, data scientists, data management, making sure we can use that data as Amazon does incredibly mm. uh, to, to, to benefit our customers. So those are sort of three of the ways in which we're getting quite excited. Interesting. At a conference a couple of weeks ago, I mean, to say a couple of weeks ago, this was September. Gosh, how time flies. <laughs> um, we sort of saw a bit of a demo from one of our keynote speech speakers of, um, of an app called Lemonade, mm -hmm. the insurance app. Yep. You know, and this was... Uh, it reduced insurance payout times to a matter of seconds. Yeah. Uh, using all manner of uh, AI and tech that yeah. I don't understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, yeah. Um, you know that was a sort of uh, that was a pretty big moment in terms of uh, you know seeing you know truly what the implications of yeah. this progress are. Um, is Aviva concerned about those sorts of things? Because you're talking about you know cutting you know knowing who the customer is yeah. as soon as they call up. I mean, this is an app where you put your thumbprint on the phone and it's yeah. bang, gone. I mean, I think, uh, yes, we're, we're, we're concerned and that's why we want to disrupt ourselves before somebody else comes along and disrupts us. We're aware of some of these, um, let's call them startups, who, who come along with great presentation. I think what they are winning on at the moment is the public relations and the presentation and the excitement. We did look at examples of competitors and innovators who are saying we will pay claims in such a short period of time. Okay. And we turned to our incumbent business and, and they said, you know what, well, we kind of do that already, but we hadn't made a fuss about it. I'm not saying it's a thumbprint, but mm -hmm. phone up and within a short period of time, you've got the money in your bank account if you've got a flood situation and your car's broken down. We have just kind of morphed and evolved along and we're doing many of these things that new kids in the block come along and celebrate and, and, and make more of. So yeah, we should be celebrating more of what we're already doing. But coming back to your original point, yes, we want to be frightened of what others are doing. We do not, we've been around for 320 plus years. We do not believe we've got any right to be around for another 320 years. Mm. Um, and uh, why should we have any right 
Uh, we've got a huge potential. We've got a massively strong brand. We've already got X million customers around the world. We service them all the time as best we can. So we've got some loyalty. Mm. But if somebody can come along and do it better than Aviva, then, then good luck to them. But we don't want to give them that chance. I think this relates to one of my favourite topics to discuss in the podcast, which is marketing. Yeah. I think, you know, when I turn on the TV, I see this conflict between two different approaches taken by uh, companies in the financial services sector. And I think you could take a couple of case studies in point. So the first one would be someone like Lloyds Bank Banking Group. Mm -hmm. So their current marketing uh, uh, campaign is all about uh, longevity. Yeah. It's about the longevity of their brand, about being by the customer's side for however many years and showing that through time. So they've got the horse yeah. you know, that runs through uh, the First World War and you know lifeboats in the 19th century and uh, people giving birth and you, you know you've got images of gay marriage and all these progressive things yeah, that Lloyd's yeah. is somehow taking credit for. <laughs> um, uh, don't like that. Um, but then you've got <laughs> then you've got other brands that are that are sort of trying to ditch the trying to ditch the old stuff. Yeah. And they're trying to look all hip and new. So take Goldman Sachs, take Marcus, this new sort of current account from Goldman's, yeah. where they're trying to throw off this image of the sort of evil investment bank and you know look at us we can give you a good rate of interest on your savings yeah start afresh it's a new thing um i don't think that the financial services i mean they're not the same company they're not in the same in business yeah different business models granted but i i think there's a bit of a tension going on there that hasn't been resolved and i wonder where sort of aviva sits in between the two yeah i think i mean i have got sympathy with my many marketing colleagues because everybody is a marketing expert. Everybody <laughs> knows what the advert should be. Everybody can tell the marketing professionals. That's not me saying I know what the ad should be. Well, I think, so I think, and from my insight is, again, in our organization, there's a huge amount of data driving the way that the messages should be delivered and how it attracts and how it engages the population. So um, I always uh, bow to their insight, their experience, and their desire to drive the things forward. Um, so first of all, I'd say that. I'll now pause and see, I can't, what was your question? Well, where does, <laughs> where does Aviva's sort of brand sit in between those two poles? I mean, I, I feel like it sort of sits in And what are your two, in the middle. What are your two poles? Well, the, the you know, uh, longevity brand, we've been around yeah. for ages, trust us, yeah, because yeah, yeah. everyone has already trusted, yeah, yeah, uh, has yeah, always yeah. trusted us. And then sort of the, the other side of things with Goldman's, where it's sort of like, you know, we're making a break. This yeah. is a break from the past. Um, Here's something entirely new with a new name and yeah, I don't think I think I, I think when I was pretending I could be a marketing expert, I thought the messages <laughs> that we were three hundred and twenty years old, that we had thirty million customers around the world, uh, that that should be the truly, and we should have a British flag waving across the screen <laughs> to remind people that we're British to the sounds of Nimrod. That was my vision of an advert, you know. Um, How long ago was this? <laughs> <laughs> and, and and I was very quickly told that um, that doesn't work, um, uh, and um, and therefore we will not go down that road. Uh, well, we're very proud to work for Aviva. Uh, we're, as I say, one of one million employers in the one of one million companies in the UK. So while I'm very passionate and proud to work for Aviva. I have to accept that customers see us as just one of the various financial services companies. So our longevity, et cetera, is something that we as an organization are proud of. We celebrate it. One of our core values is to create legacy. We want to be around for another 300 years. We've celebrated 300 years of history. But, but 
I don't think, I wouldn't, I don't see Aviva going down what you suggested, you used the example of Lloyd's of celebrating that status um, is something that Aviva chooses to do. But we have to accept that um, we're at the same time we're not a startup. Um, so it's, I, I'm kind of bumbling, but I think it's probably somewhere in between the two extremes. I think it is. And um, just as a final point, you know, I think Aviva has an interesting approach because a lot of its ads are actually designed to make people laugh. Yeah, you know, you had the. And I think this is with the moved on since because they've got sort of James Corden and the, mm. you know, the the yeah. the Gen GI yeah. driving insurance app stuff. Yeah, to challenge families to compete with each other about who's yeah. better driver. But you, had, you know, you had Paul Whitehouse. No, you, I agree. You know. One of the one of the reasons that I'm sat here today is to challenge the public perception of Aviva. In that, if I went out into the street and asked ten people, "Have you heard of Aviva?" Fortunately, nine of the ten say they have. It's a well-known brand. And then my second question is, "What does Aviva do?" And they'll say, "Oh, that's that car insurance company, isn't it?" That is the public perception of Aviva, despite the fact that more than or the biggest product line we have in the UK is savings, investments, and retirement. Um, traditionally, it has been sold via intermediaries, so we're well-known amongst the advisor community and amongst employers, mm. but the growing market is the direct-to-consumer market. So we recognise we need to boost the public awareness that you don't need to just come to Aviva for your car insurance, your travel insurance, your home insurance, but also yeah. millions of people, literally five-plus million people, already come to Aviva for their pension savings and retirement. So you, you should, if we're successful, see a growing awareness of Aviva being a in the high street, being a, a savings, pensions, investments, retirement business as well. That's a very interesting point. I I wonder where advisors can sit in that as a community, and and where Aviva might summon some of its sort of brand clout to direct the public's attention towards financial advice and yeah. and its you know its product line. There was I think I think the days have gone where we as an organisation were paranoid about speaking direct to the consumer for fear of upsetting the advisor. I would be honest, like five years ago, we'd be very reluctant to speak direct to the end consumer because the backbone of our business was the advice community. The backbone of our business is still the advice community. I would say something like 90% of our pensions business continues to come through the advice arm and that will continue to thrive. I've got total confidence in that. But there is a growing appetite and there's a growing need for increasingly people to come direct and manage it and DIY it themselves. Many people cannot access financial advice. Many people believe they can't afford financial advice. So we're, our philosophy is that there's a total complementary relationship between going direct and also working with an advisor. If anybody comes to us direct, I'd be amazed. The number of times we'll say, please consider financial advice. Please consider financial advice. Have you considered financial advice? Here's links to financial advisors. Mm. Um, so we definitely do not hide the value, the power and the benefit of financial advice. But um, we've recently increasingly launched our direct propositions because there's a demand for people, increasingly young people maybe, to come direct. Mm. Um, I think one of the statistics we saw is every year we trace, where do people go for financial help in the UK? And for 10 years, it's always been the one place that we all go. And our number one place is a country we all go for financial guidance and financial advice, that word, is mum and dad. dad. Yeah, and it still is mum and dad. 10 years ago, the afterthought was online. You had you mum and dad, friends, mates in the pub, the taxi driver, <laughs> um, financial advisors, banks, and then, oh yeah, there's the internet. The internet is now number two. Mm-hmm. 
And our belief is that in the next 10 years, at least in financial advice, the internet will replace mum and dad as, as where we'll all go for financial guidance. Now that is interesting. That is very interesting. Let's talk about young people then. Because yep. uh, you've written here in your notes, you know, push back on this classic perception of selfish, selfie taking millennials. Um, where does that fit into Aviva's mission to kind of disrupt itself? I mean, you've spoken a little bit about the digital garage and you know hiring young tech yeah. guns yeah, yeah, there. Yeah. But generally speaking, as a next generation of customers and even potentially advisors or investors, yeah, you know, how does that work? Well, I think I think my mantra first of all is to push back on the selfie taking selfish generations. I argue, I think with a straight mind that the younger generation, by that I mean the under 30s today, face greater financial pressures than, than any generation has gone before. Um, you know, house prices that are beyond reach, no longer having the generous financial final salary pensions behind them, the gig economy, flatlining income growth, that's a really tough environment. Let's put Brexit to one side, but that's a really tough environment for these people to come into. Yet despite that, this generation is choosing to rise to the challenge. If you look at automatic enrollment, the fastest growing users of automatic enrollment has been the young. It's doubled since automatic enrollment was introduced in 2012 amongst that age group. We find no evidence of a just live for today mindset amongst the young. They get- Really? The need to, yeah, I mean, we, we, we research cu customers around the world and when you look in the UK and you ask them, would you rather spend today or save today? The, there is no age difference. There is a bias towards the need and the desire to save, and there is no bias that the young are just saying, forget it, I'm just gonna spend for today. You can tell that I wasn't included in that survey. There are some, <laughs> and you may be the one that was going for it, there are some. Um, and and, and there's, there's, a, there's a greater financial literacy amongst younger people now that I think, I mean, I'll be honest, my parents, and to some extent, I was fortunate to be at the tail end of this, that my financial planning for retirement was initially, not now, but initially done for me by me. I turned up to work for my first employer and I was very lucky and they put me into what was then a final salary pension scheme. I had no idea what that meant when I was that age. I had no idea of the value of it, but it was done for me. The former generations, I do not believe were more financially astute appreciated financial salary pensions more than the younger people did today. Younger people today do not have that benefit. They realize they have to look after themselves. It's quite an independently minded population. They are uh, willing to take on responsibility. They've, they've, they've got not less deferential uh, mindset towards authority. Hmm. Um, so first of all, I think let's just pause and give respect and support to that younger population for A, rising to the challenge and be just given the tough environment that they're in at the moment. Do you know what? I totally agree with you. I don't think I could agree with you more. I think I see so many examples online in comment pages where it's the classic sort of moaning at millennials who have no, you know, they're, they're lazy, they don't have any idea about money, they need to, you know, pull their finger out and sort themselves yeah. out. And you think back to those examples where you know, my father, for instance, when he started his career, I'm pretty sure you know, he was put immediately into defined benefit pension yeah. scheme. Did, did he have any interest or desire to take control of his money? Absolutely not. No. He, was, he, he was quite rightly concerned with being a young man and having a good time and living yeah. his life. Yeah, yeah, and there's yeah. no difference there with millennials today, except to say that, as, as you rightly point out, the 
so that the socioeconomic safety net is uh, has more holes in it, yeah. I would say. Yeah. But also because uh, millennials' activity is so much more visible. Everyone's activity is so much more visible. Yes. So there's so much more to comment well, on. Well, and, you, of and you, one of your previous podcasts was fascinating, lifting the lid on the age demographics. Now, I think I have to pause here and say, this does not mean millennials have got it tough, everybody else has got it easy. That That's also misguided. Uh, equally, Aviva is very focused and um, keen and sensitive to the pressures on the 45 plus age generation. Um, this age generation is the fastest growing population in the UK. It is found to be the most stressed population in the UK, the least happy population in the UK. The first population that will really start to enter retirement without the bedrock of a DB pension in many cases. The first generation that's gonna be asked to work longer for its state pension. So that, to be honest, that 45 plus age group is also an age group that is equally facing challenge, different challenge, but equally facing challenge. So, so it's misguided to say some have it hard, others have it great, they're all to blame, they've all got it right. That's not the case. There are different challenges facing different ages. I just put it on the record, I think the younger people have unique challenges that previous generations didn't have, and they are to date trying their best to rise to those challenges. That's a pretty unique tool. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, technology being the, the number one. They are the biggest users of technology. They want to use it. They don't want to use a phone. <laughs> uh, literally, a voice phone. They would rather just tap away on this keyboard. Sure. Let's stick with this savings issue. I mean, yeah. you've written about an unprecedented demographic time yeah. in, yeah. in the decades to come. Um, and you mentioned about you know the MyAviva app and, and how this can help uh, people engage with their savings. Mm. One of the biggest projects that we're writing about at the moment to help people engage with their savings is the pension dashboard. Yep, yep. Um, talk to me about that. I mean, what are your hopes for that? Because uh, I wonder whether we're going to see a bit of a furore uh, in the same way that we've seen one with, um, with smart meters. You know, the yep. promise with smart meters was that people could see the data. I mean, granted, it's not the same thing, but they could see the data. Yep. It would help them to engage. They would cut their carbon footprint and everyone would be laughing all the way into the future with a planet yep. that you yep. know, was fine. Um, are we going to run into a bit of a problem there where having, sp having spent all this time, energy, money, uh, parliamentary time as well, mm -hmm. putting this together, that we find that actually the response there is a response from users of yeah. the dashboard but it's not quite as defined or no. um out there yeah, as i i, I think it'd be misguided for anyone to think that the pension dashboard will be the answer to everything in the uk but it's sure. going to be a massive and rightly so test for our industry and for the government departments related mm -hmm. um the technology out there exists has the potential to transform people's awareness for the pension pots they have. We all know there's a growing number of pension pots for individuals out there, and there's a solution there. It requires ambition, it requires leadership, it requires coordination. And in six months' time, I think, we will know whether the government concerned and the industry concerned have the ability to rise to that challenge. My fear is that we get stuck in a debate that goes on for years about if, how, and when we implement a pensions dashboard. Um, I mean, that's already happened. It has, and I think there's a, there's a, it has, you're right, and that's why I fear that it could continue. I would, I would say, like, let's, let's give that debate a shelf life. 
And if, if you and I are still sat here, hopefully we are on our weekly podcast, <laughs> Ollie and Al show. Um, if you and I are still sat here in another year's time saying, well, wonder where that's going to get to. I think we have to just say, do you know what? Maybe it's just not the way forward. Maybe there's better solutions to that. Um, I can tell immediately that you're, you're, you're sort of looking into the air like, gosh, that would be so boring. And yeah. I agree. Yeah. Uh, it would be, and it would be disappointing. It would be a sign that the industry and the government together have not risen to the challenge. And moreover, abandoned savers at a point where they, you know they do need more than what they currently have. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think that's the real thing here is that we can't lose sight of this issue that people aren't engaged with money generally. No, no, and we've got a responsibility to help them. They want help. They want online help. The industry has to come together. It requires leadership. I would look to the government really to provide that leadership. Automatic enrollment has been a transformational success. A key ingredient in that was was government at the table providing strong direction and strong leadership. We are, let's face facts, Aviva is a competitor with all of its other businesses. We're not one big happy family. Sure. We come around the table and I want his business or her business and she wants my business. Why should we all just come around and hug each other and build a dashboard as one happy family? The world <laughs> is not like that. It needs some it needs a somebody with a stick, dare I say it, to tell us what to do. And I, I look um, to the government to provide some of that stick. But we've got a chance to rise to the challenge. It could be brilliant. It won't be the answer to everything, but if we can make it happen, great, and then build on it um, would be my challenge to the government. Intrigued to hear you talk about you know leadership and coordination. I mean, it's a very strong sense that, you know, from the ABI, for instance, that they are helping to coordinate this. Yeah. There's lots of different stakeholders, and as you say, it's not going to be entirely easy process at times. No. But I mean, we can't ignore the fact that we've got stories about you know, effectively uh, the Department for Work and Pensions saying to the industry, well, no, the ball is in your court. And mm. it's, it strikes me, I mean, I know you probably can't reveal too much about this because you're a stakeholder yourself, but it strikes me that there is a bit of a leadership issue there. And maybe, maybe someone like Guy Opperman who knows, would be the perfect person yeah. to be the leader, but yeah. is not being given well, the space to say I, I, what he thinks. There's a, the fact that we're debating where does the ball sit, who holds the ball, is not a great place for this debate to be, because <laughs> I think the ball still does sit with the government okay. in that we are waiting for the the legendary feasibility study. The legendary feasibility <laughs> study. <laughs> and we did see in the budget, that they, they used, then used the phrase there'd be a consultation. It's like Game of Thrones this, isn't it? The feasibility study is coming. <laughs> um, so those are two things that the government have said they will deliver. A consultation they've described it as they said they would deliver a feasibility study. Um, so I, I think there's an element that the industry is waiting for those two documents to happen mm -hmm. and to provide some element of direction. Um, Aviva has been at the heart of the, the dashboard debate since day one. We've held events at our digital garage to understand how it could work. Uh, we've hosted meetings with the pensions minister and others. So we're very keen to play our part. Um, but I don't think Aviva could be, the, 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 as a commercial provider, the, the leader um, why, why would other competitors follow our direction? Why should we have that arrogance to think that we can lead uh, mm. and tell others what to do? Um, so I just, I just hope the debate can come to a head um, sooner rather than later for the benefit of customers. Well, Guy Opperman, if you're listening to this, you know, get on with it, mate. I mean, we need some leadership Those are your here. words, not my words. <laughs> He's a very busy man. Happy to own that. That's fine. Um, Let's just finish up by looking at this sort of metaphor that you've written about uh, in the notes about uh, 
the managing retirement expectations. Mm. You said, are we just shifting the deck chairs on the Titanic? Yeah. What do you mean by that, shifting the deck well, chairs on the Titanic? Well, I mean, I love social media and Twitter is a fantastic tool. Sometimes. Sometimes, that's true. <laughs> you probably get more, I'd be interested to see the kind of feedback you can get, but um, it, can, it can be a, a, it's a great tool. And the thing about Twitter is it has, it's, it's 100x characters. It's an incredibly short-termist, heated debating environment about that, literally that day or that hour or that minute's topic. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we can get very excited about that day's topic and we get heated about it and then we move on to the next day's topic which is great and it's fun and it can be entertaining and educating. But the scale of the challenge that the UK faces is not a 24-hour challenge or a one-hour challenge or a one-tweet challenge. Mm. The figure that I always go back to is one, not my figure, but the Office for Budget Responsibility calculated the cost of the ageing society to the UK. We are living longer. There are more people over the age of 60 in society. That brings with it a cost. They estimate that in 50 years, the UK, if we did nothing else, and we just lived as we are living today, we would have to find an extra £173 billion every year to support our olding population. Now, first of all, £173 billion is a lot of money. But how could I put that money into context? Well, £173 billion is more than the UK currently spends on defence, policing, agriculture, the environment, housing and transport combined. So if we do nothing and we leave it to the generation of 50 years time, they will be asked the question, do you want a state pension or do you want roads? Do you want a healthcare service for older people or do you want fresh air? Do you want long-term care for the elders in society? Or do you want or a, do you want a missile house? system? Or do you want a missile? Easy question. Well, that, even, the, even, <laughs> even getting rid of the dreaded missile system is not going to be, re- recoup your £173 billion. Pounds. So it's, sure, that's, sure. that alone is not the answer to it. And my point is the scale of the challenge facing the UK is of such that a 24-hour Twitter debate is fun, it's engaging and it's exciting, but it's not of the magnitude that is required to challenge and respond to this. Um, the last time that the UK had a fundamental look at how it supports itself, I would argue, was in the 1940s with the Beveridge Report, mm. when it really said we need to have a fresh look at how we support itself. Now, that came in the shadows of the Second World War, a fundamental change in the UK and how the UK was behaving, and it resulted in the Beveridge system, the welfare state as we've known it. I'm not convinced that the UK can sustain, and this is a controversial view, but can sustain the, the beverage report model into the future unless it can find £173 billion of money from elsewhere to do so. Mm-hmm. I think we're at a time now where there needs to be some brave leadership, and it must start politically, but some brave leadership to say we need to have another fresh look at how we support the UK. Mm. I would call it beverage two. Yeah. Um, Beverage One came out of the, let's call it the trauma of the Second World War. Brexit, I'm not saying for or against, but Brexit's going to cause a shake-up in the UK. Could Brexit be the time that says we need to have another fundamental look at how we support ourselves as a society? Mm. Um, It's a big challenge. It's a long-term challenge. It was beyond five-year election cycles. But I do not want to be leaving the next generation in 50 years' time with the choice of, I say, fresh air or a healthcare service, Mm. state pension or roads long-term care or housing, that's not the right way to approach this. So 
Yes, get the dashboard done. Yes, talk about DB transfers. Let's get excited about CDC. Let's talk about charges. All these stuff are really, really important, but the challenge is way beyond that. That requires people to step away from Twitter for two minutes and put some calm and brave and long-term thinking down. Whether we can get there politically or commercially, I don't know, but, but that, and that's why this debate, I think, is so fascinating. The magnitude of it, it touches on so many things. What a very, very salient point on which to end. Thank you. Um, Alistair, thank you so much for coming in. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, great. Um, that's all for this week, folks, but don't forget, you can rifle through our back catalogue of podcast episodes online by going to the NMA website and finding our podcast hub. And of course, if you like what we do, please give us a review, a nice one, if you, if you will. Um, until next time, it's thanks and goodbye. <laughs>